Good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be with y'all. Been traveling, like I know many of y'all have been. We've been to Mississippi and Greenville, South Carolina, and then Wilmington, North Carolina, and back to Orangeburg, and now we're in Columbia. (laughs) So lots of kind of a big circle, I guess. Um, But uh, as John mentioned earlier, I'm the church planner here in or down in Orangeburg, and Orangeburg's my hometown. Um, where I grew up and um, kind of got my got my start, and um, you know this this theme of reconciliation with God and reconciliation not only with God but with man has been really near and dear to my heart and my um, ministry, and what I really have felt God calling me into is a ministry of reconciliation. That's really what we're all called to, a ministry of reconciliation, um, both in our reconciliation to God and then with our neighbors, with one another. And um, as I've begun planting in Orangeburg, and even before that, as I started thinking about planting in Orangeburg, um, and really seeking to have a ministry of reconciliation, um, I really wanted to know what does the scripture have to say about this topic? What does the scripture have to teach us about reconciliation? And what does it have to teach us about the church and how, as we look at our own history, how divided the church has been along ethnic and racial lines? And so the passage before us today is really one of those passages that has deeply spoken to me, has been one of the sort of hooks that I've tried to hang my hat on as I've approached ministry in Orangeburg. So I wanted to share that with y'all as, as, one, as our sending church, as our mother church. And you may not know what mother church means. My son asked me, what is a mother church? And I'm like, it's like the mothership. It's, I, don't, I don't even know how to get into that, but, um, and I won't. Um, but if you would, open your, open your uh, copy of the scripture and turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking this morning at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. Here, now, this is God's word for us. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicantor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These, they sat before the apostles, and they prayed, and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God's word, let me pray for us. Father, as we come to you this morning approaching your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and minister to each of us, that you would unite our hearts in faith, that even as we approach the table later, that that we would be united in our love for you and in your love for us and the mercy that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, give us an understanding of your word this morning. Speak.
speak, O Lord. Give us ears to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in this passage, we're just going to ask three questions. The first question, what was the problem? The second question, what was the solution? And the third question, what was the outcome? First, what was the problem? Look with me at verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What was the problem? It kind of depends on who you ask. There's two problems here. First, there was complaining. <laughs> okay, And if you're a parent, you get this. There's complaining. Uh, a complaint arose by the Hellenists. Okay, these are the Greek-speaking Jews. A complaint. So there's, that's, that's a problem. There's complaining going on. But second, there was a neglect going on. The Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's complaining and there's neglect. And if you are paying attention in the last year and a half, you'll notice that whenever a racially charged situation happens... And when it's unfolding, like in Ferguson, Missouri, or in Baltimore, or even here in Columbia, you'll see these two sides emerge. Two perspectives on the problem. One, there's complaining. There's demonstrations in the street. There's rioting. There's those who are in the minority, or those who are in the majority who say, that's the problem, there's all these complaints. But then on the other side, the minority usually says, no, the problem is the neglect. The problem is that there's an inherent injustice in the system that favors the majority. And so you see these two sides emerge, just, just like in this passage. There's complaining, and there's a charge of neglect. The problem is the problem we have identifying the problem, right? How do we know what the problem is? Sometimes... My kids whine and complain. Doesn't happen often. (laughs) Right, guys? Sometimes they whine and complain. Well, a week or so ago, we were on our way to my sister's house. And my oldest son was complaining about his stomach. He was whining. And to me, it just sounded like ordinary, everyday complaining and whining and moaning and groaning. I was like, you're going to be okay. We're almost there. I mean, literally, we're almost there. We were turning the corner onto my sister's street when he couldn't wait any longer. And I will save you the gory details, but let me just say this. The substance of his complaint became manifest. Everywhere. We were literally pulling into the yard when it happened. Sometimes in Scripture... Complaining is the problem. You know, think about the Exodus. There are many times that God's people complained against God. They complained against Moses and God's provision for them. And that complaining was addressed itself. But what if there is an underlying problem? What if your stomach really is messed up? In this situation, I think it's incredible, actually, that the apostles... Don't rush in to tell everyone, stop complaining. That's not their first response. No, they listen to the complaints and they discover that there is a real injustice happening in this situation. Now, 
the neglect of the widows had probably not been done intentionally. This was what we might call a sin of omission. The problem wasn't the complaining, it was the sinful and racially based neglect among believers. The neglect was the result of cultural divisions that had worked their way into the church. As you may know, Hebrew society was characterized by rigid class and ethnic distinctions. Now, this was not really the way God intended things to be, but by the time of Jesus, many of the Jewish leaders had developed a religion based on one's ability to raise one's status before God. And your ethnic and racial and cultural identity were viewed as a a way to, to earn God's favor. It was part of being... sort of earning and improving your status before God. In fact, there's a a, a famous Jewish prayer from a a, uh, first century prayer book that contains this popular prayer. And maybe some of you have heard this before. It goes like this. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. (laughs) Okay, and this is a real prayer in a real prayer book. So you get the idea that this this seeking of a status of a cultural and racial identity was so important to to the Jewish culture. And it had begun to work its way into the church. But there were very real cultural differences. Some of the cultural differences are are, are this. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking. The Hebrews were Aramaic-speaking, Hebrew-speaking. The Hellenists read a different Bible translation. They read the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. They had different language, different customs. And the Hellenists were the minority in Jerusalem. The Pharisees and religious leaders and many Jews held the Hellenists in contempt. They were considered second-class Jews, second-class citizens. But at Pentecost, when God sent his Holy Spirit... Both Hebrew and Greek-speaking Jews came to faith in Jesus Christ. When the Spirit was poured out, there was one body, and they began to form a new community. But as we see, the old prejudices were kind of working their way back into the, to the community. And they were having a, a practical effect on the fairness with which widows were being served. These old prejudices were having a, an actual effect on the way the church was operating. Now, our own history in the American church is riddled with similar problems. Here's what a pastor 50 years ago had to say about this topic. He said, We must face the fact that in America, the church is still the most segregated major institution At 11 o'clock on Sunday morning when we stand and sing and Christ has no east or west, we stand at the most segregated hour in this nation. This is tragic. Nobody of honesty can overlook this. Now, I'm sure that if the church had taken a stronger stand all along, we wouldn't have had many of the problems that we have. The first way the church can repent, the first way that it can move out into the arena of social reform is to remove the yoke of segregation from its own body, he wrote. 
Now, I'm not saying that society must sit down and wait on a spiritual and moribund church as we've so seen, as we've so often seen. I think it should have started in the church. But since it didn't start in the church, our society needed to move on. The church itself will stand under the judgment of God. Now that the mistake of the past has been made, I think that the opportunity of the future is to really go out and to transform American society. And where else is there a better place than in the institution that should serve as the moral guardian of the community? The institution that should preach brotherhood and make it a reality within its own body. Now, I didn't do justice to the words of Martin Luther King Jr., But 50 years ago, he was saying Sunday morning is the most segregated day of the week. And we can give glory to God that much progress has been made in our society. It has. Much much progress has been made, even in the church. But today, according to recent LifeWay research, 8 out of 10 churches in the U.S. are made up of entirely one race. 8 out of 10. Our social networks are uniform. Um, it, it's natural, right? It's it, it's it's countercultural to to a, for for a Jewish for for a Hebrew speaking Jew to reach out and to love a Hellenistic Jew. It, it's countercultural for you or I to reach out and to love our neighbor who has a different culture, a different skin color, or other differences that we may find. But like the Christians in the early church, we have let cultural divisions dictate how we worship with whom we worship, and who we claim to be our family, who we claim to be our own. Um, as I've thought about this and, and, and listened to my um, brothers and sisters, I realize that people in the majority culture, like me, often do not know that there's a race problem. Because for us, there really isn't one. There is a lot of complaining. But it's really hard for those in the majority, like me, to see the injustices that are are really behind what the complaints are. You know, I'm, I'm pretty easily able to go through life being polite to my black and brown neighbors, working and shopping alongside one another, perhaps even voting for someone into office, yet being completely oblivious to the reality of the biases that exist. The, the, the racial neglect in this country, not to mention in our churches. And I want to say this too, multicultural platitudes. <laughs> I've been accused of this, okay, wanting to plant a church in Orangeburg. Multicultural platitudes, um, periodic partnerships, social programs will not make a lasting change. God is calling us to Repentance. And, and that's the only way forward is, is repentance. So what was the solution? Second question. Look back at the scripture with me to verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they got everyone together, and they said something that in the eyes of the world is quite foolish. 
They said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The 12 must have felt the tyranny of the urgent. The distribution wasn't going well. People were complaining. Injustices were rearing their ugly head. They must have felt, we got to step in and solve this problem real fast. Let's cover it over. Let's fix it. But they didn't do what I would do. They didn't do what you would do. The 12 said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Really? Prayer? The ministry of the word? People are complaining. This, whole, this ship is sinking. But no, the 12 said, it's not right that we should give up preaching of the word. They want to be devoted to the ministry of the word. The word ministry in verse 4 that we just read is the same word translated distribution in verse 1. The first pastors of the early church prioritized the distribution of the gospel over the distribution of food. There's a temptation for the modern pastor to busy himself with administrative tasks running church programs, and spending a great deal of time doing social and political work. One of the devil's deceptions is fooling all of us Christians into believing that our work is the most important. We love to be the one to save the day and make things right. We love to be the Messiah. But brothers and sisters, there is only one Messiah. And it's his work that matters. It's the only thing that matters. The apostles knew that. And they knew that the the best way to combat racial disharmony and conflict in the church was not primarily through forcing external change. It was through internal change. And internal change only happens by the grace of God in the heart of believers through the ministry of the word and through prayer. Man, it's amazing how they saw that. That this is what we needed to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us humility because it tells us that we're sinful from birth and we're incapable of any spiritual good apart from God's grace. We shouldn't be surprised by our sin. In our fallen humanity, we are self-interested, self-pleasing, and self-seeking in all of our relationships with other human beings, especially those who are different from us. And sadly, when we are confronted with these truths about ourselves, we become self-righteous about it. And all we hear is complaining. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ empowers us to listen with humility. It empowers us to dialogue about cultural issues, accusations, and to hold our own viewpoint with suspicion. Humility, to hold our own viewpoint with suspicion with suspicion. The Spirit of God enables us to be honest about the centuries of legal favoritism and the attending neglect of minority rights in this country. The gospel of Jesus Christ helps us to face our evil, even the evil that we might not see. The gospel is the message of an all-good God who looked evil in the face who took it upon himself, who bore the wrath of God. Jesus became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And so through that message, through that preaching of the gospel, we can face evil too. Because he has done it for us. Fully God, fully man. Jesus lived a good and fully loving life. Without a hint of racism or prejudice, Jesus lived his life. Loving all of his neighbors perfectly, even the Samaritan woman. And perfecting righteousness in his life. Jesus offered up himself as an atoning sacrifice for every one of us who would trust in him. So that he he gets the glory, he gets the punishment that our sins deserve, and we get the, the righteousness that he earned. The gift of forgiveness and eternal life is offered to every race by the unmerited grace of God so that no one may boast. And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can freely admit that we are far more sinfully prejudiced than we dare imagine. And we can admit it. And then we can, then we can move forward. Prejudice is a gospel problem. Um, and it needs a gospel solution. That's really what the apostles were saying. Prayer and preaching. Third question. What was the outcome? Look back with me at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicantor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So how do we know that the prayers and the preaching were effective to transform hearts? We begin to see the church repent. And we begin to see the early church love one another. The church, including a majority of Hebrew disciples, voted to elect seven men to serve as new leaders or maybe deacons in the church. Their first task was to organize the food distribution program. Okay? The apostles are devoting themselves to preaching and prayer, but these guys are going to get on the food distribution program. They were men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They had a good reputation They were qualified. They were men full of the spirit, full of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. They were wise. And every last one of them was a minority. All of these names, the reason they're named, I think, is because they were all Greek names. Not Hebrew, but Greek. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicantor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. In fact, the author tells us an extra detail about Nicolaus. He not only had a Greek name, but he was a proselyte, which means that he was ethnically Greek as well. The disciples understood the implications of the apostles' teaching. They realized that the gospel meant that cultural distinctions do not give any advantage before God. 
As Paul would later write, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. No, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the church repented. They repented in this act of electing all of these Greek-speaking folks to be their leaders and to make sure that the, the Greek widows were taken care of. The congregation of believers were submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. They got it because their hearts were being transformed by the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit that they were praying for. What an amazing outcome. In verse 7, it tells us what happened next. They all became famous for their great social programs. No. It says, the word of God continued to increase. Because the, the apostles focused on the work of God and not the work of men, which they easily could have focused on the work of men, right? But they focused on the work of God and the word of God increased. God was glorified and gave them growth in numbers. Two of those church leaders went on to become powerful prayer warriors and preachers. Stephen in chapter 7 and Philip in chapter 8. In fact, it's Philip who shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch who then took the message of the gospel with him back to Africa, which certainly ties into some of our issues today, doesn't it? Faith and repentance can have worldwide consequences, and they have, but they must first have local consequences, brothers and sisters. So just a few takeaways for what, what does this passage mean for us as a church. First, appoint elders, which you have. Appoint elders to be devoted to the distribution of the word and of prayer. Ministry is important. Service is important. Mercy is important. But we must prioritize the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must prioritize prayer. Elders, pray. Pray together. Pray for the church. Pray with the church. Pray for your elders. And when your pastors are spending time preparing to preach or to lead a Bible study, or they're praying together, it's the most important thing that they can be doing. So encourage them, congregation, in their prayer and in their preparation for teaching and preaching. Second, appoint deacons. Appoint deacons who will be devoted to the distribution of mercy, to the distribution of material things. One of the best ways to bring racial unity and understanding is to have dinner together with your neighbors. Um, especially other believers from other churches that, that you know, have dinner together. That's countercultural. And maybe your deacon's job should be to facilitate dinner, <laughs> to literally serve tables, you know, as we see in this passage. Maybe that would be a way to provide for the hungry and to encourage fellowship. And then thirdly, love your neighbor as yourself. Every member of the church must make an effort to get to know their neighbors. No matter what their skin color or culture, listen to the complaints and do better than I did in the, in the van. <laughs> listen. Take them seriously. Seek to understand what underlying issues might be. It will be messy. 
and you will say something stupid. But you have the freedom in Christ to mess up and to ask for forgiveness. I mean, if you had to ask your neighbor for forgiveness every day, what a testimony to the grace of God at work in your life. And so, our prayer is that the number of disciples would multiply greatly in Colombia and in this region, in Orangeburg and other areas, in our state, in the nation, in the world, through the distribution of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we, um, I'm just really blown away by the leadership that you gave the early church, that that they would be so um, understanding, that they would be so spirit-led, that they would be so centered on the, the grace of God, that they would prioritize preaching. Thank you, Spirit, for leading those early church leaders like that. Thank you that we have this story and that, has, that is your word, that we, that we have uh, this truth to now apply and to bear fruit in our own lives. And I do pray for the leadership of this church, um, for churches that are being planted and those who we're partnering with, that, Lord, you would help us to, to truly prioritize the preaching of the gospel and prayer. And that we would not leave other things undone, but that we would raise up teams and elders and deacons and leaders within the church, men and women, to love and serve and to really bring the reconciliation that we have with you to bear in our human relationships. We pray for that, Lord. We desire that so much for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.